Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarter Deck. This week in our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worse enemy. We're going to go ahead and continue now that the division commanders all know that the commander-in-chief has given the order, and now the commanding general is just simply waiting for the order from the president of the United States to let him know when to cross the border into Iraq. And we're going to look at the obstacles that they came into as far as reducing the obstacles of going from Kuwait and into Iraq. And what the heck is the Iraqi army planning now that they see the division getting ready to actually head into Iraq? In our hero highlights, we take a look at the story and the citation of Platoon Sergeant Joseph Rudolph Julian, United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's time for the it's, it's time for the gunny. It's time. It's time. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. As now we are into September, we reach the time every single year where it is Suicide Prevention Month amongst the veterans and service members. And numbers, you know, are always, always high in these kind of categories and stuff. We always hear the fact that there's so many people that are taking their own lives or because they're dealing with demons and everything else that's going on in their lives. And that's one of the things that a lot of people, I guess because you can't see the this kind of disease in a person, it makes it very, very difficult for people to notice it, even though, yes, we get training all the time about, oh, you should have seen the signs, the signs were there, this and all those things. But there are so many people out there that, you know, they just need a person to talk to, somebody to talk to, something to do to get their mind off of whatever they may be going. You don't know that. Maybe, just maybe, if you see a person and you say, hey, how are you doing? How's your day today? That might be all that it takes for you to make that huge of a difference. And in today's society, that it's changed so drastically much because I can remember growing up, even as a young Marine, you walk by somebody, you say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, something. Just out of courtesy, out of respect to see how they're doing. That's just the way that it is. And today, you know, the kids, the way they are today, the way that they're raised and brought up, they don't say anything. They just walk by, don't say anything at all. It's very rare that you see someone helping somebody, you know, load up their car or in the grocery store or down there or something to allow them to help, you know, senior citizens because they may need help. They, yeah, they may be out there doing things on their own and stuff and everything, but it's our responsibility as younger adults, younger individuals to be able to help them because sometimes they might need help. And the way that I look at it is, hey, we're going to be there someday too. We're going to be there in that same kind of situation and we're going to need you know help, assistance or from somebody to help us to do that. But this month is very, very dear and near not only to my heart but to a lot of veterans and everything that I know because there's been so many and so many service members that served with us whether it was in Iraq Afghanistan 
or other places like that that have come back home. And I don't know what is the fact that maybe they just felt that they couldn't talk to anybody or they couldn't get any help, or maybe they just didn't have any idea where to go, how to get help. And that is why it's very, very important that we, as veterans, as service members, as somebody that you may know, a veteran or something, that we know about the Veterans Crisis Line. Now, the Veterans Crisis Line is there. It's put into place to allow veterans to be able to contact a a certified counselor 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're available for them to be able to talk to them, whether it's by phone or they want to text, chat, whatever. All they simply got to do is dial 988 and then press 1 or simply just text 838-255 to be connected to a counselor somebody that will be able to help them, and it's a live connection. You're not going to be talking to any kind of computer or anything like that. A live person will sit there and talk to you because they're there to serve veterans, their families, and friends. They're there to make sure that they're there and available. Okay, it's for all service members, National Guard, Reserve, and any of those individuals that may support them, like the caregivers and stuff, they're there, they're available to help and to assist to make sure that they can provide any answers or any kind of care that they may need in order for them to be okay. And that's just the way that it is, and it's there. And so many people don't realize and understand that that service is there because there's just so many people that don't know where to get help. And it's our responsibility as veterans, as family members, heck, even just as Americans, to make sure that you know we know where to have our veterans turn to Whenever they need help, whenever they have any questions, any concerns about their health, about their well-being, about their mental state, it is very important. So now we have to remember, just let them know, hey, dial 988, then press 1, and you're going to be connected to a counselor that's available there for you all the time. Or if you don't want to talk and you want to just chat, text 838-255, and a counselor will connect with you to make sure that they can provide any assistance. Heck, even you might just want to talk to somebody on the phone. That might be all that it takes is just simply just talking to somebody on the phone and this way to make your day even better. Now, I've heard people say this a lot, and even when I was on active duty, we had classes all the time about suicide prevention and stuff and everything and things like that. But what are some of the signs? What are some of the signs that a person is actually in crisis? What are some of the things that can happen because of that, maybe they're in some kind of intimate relationship. Their relationship just completely ended terminated. They lost their job. Maybe they're not in very, very stable housing or something like that. Some kind of feeling of a loss of purpose that they don't feel like they need to be there anymore. You know, at some point, everybody is going to face challenges in their lives. And that's, that's something that's going to happen. You know, and some of these challenges may develop into some kind of a crisis. We just don't know how individuals are going to deal with these kind of situations on their own. And recognizing this crisis, whether it's by yourself or for those that you care about, can help, and you can help them to find some kind of support that is out there to help them, whether it is something that you want to do to make sure that you're there. Now, on va.gov, and and you can just simply Google the Veterans Crisis Line, there's all kinds of things for you to be able to do. You can take a self-check assessment that help you to answer questions or give you some kind of an assessment to see where your situation is and where you may be at. 
Now, this subject assessment is confidential. Okay. Anybody that's at risk, um, you know, maybe has, do you want to contact a, a counselor or a, somebody to help you to get you assistance? That is what it's there for. There's also a section on the VA.gov portion of the Veterans Crisis Line for you to be able to recognize signs that may be out there. Now, we know that every individual is different, but heck, not every individual. We're talking about veterans. So every veteran is different. Okay? And some may or may not show any signs of, at all of any intent that they, maybe that they want to harm themselves. But some of the actions and behaviors can be a certain kind of sign to let us know that they, hey, they need help. And we need to learn how to recognize these signs. Because if they are in a crisis, we can be some kind of support for them, a support line for them during this kind of difficult times or things that they may be having for these things. Now, some of these things that are out there that are going to require like immediate attention that you may notice or you may see from a family member, a service member, whoever it may be. And these are some of the signs that require immediate attention. Okay, So if you're experiencing any of these signs, you need medical attention now. You need to call 911 for any kind of immediate help in dealing with any kind of suicidal crisis. You have to contact somebody, and this is where the crisis lines come into play. Again, that's simply just dialing 988 and then pressing 1. Now, some of these things that are immediate, you know, requirement for medical treatment are if you're thinking about hurting or killing yourself, looking, searching for ways to want to kill yourself. You're talking constantly about death dying or suicide if you're self-destructive that behavior is being very very self-destructive such as drug abuse risky use of weapons etc things like that those are those signs of a crisis right away that the individual is going to need help and of course you know the warnings are there okay and these warnings can be any kind of signs that may indicate that a veteran may need help okay so if a veteran or someone you know is experiencing these things, you have to contact the crisis line and let them know what's going on. Maybe they appear sad or depressed most of the time. They feel hopeless, anxiety, agitation, sleeplessness, or very bad mood swings all the time. They're feeling as if they have absolutely no reason to live or to be there anymore. Uh, they feel excessive with guilt, shame, or sense of failure all the time. Anger, rages, you know, those are there. Uh, engaging in risky activities without thinking about them. You know, wanting that adrenaline rush that they think that they need constantly all of the time. Drug, alcohol use. Um, maybe they had hobbies in the past that they liked doing all the time and now they've lost these interests and the things that they want to do. We want to make sure that we keep an eye on those things. Families, friends. Maybe they withdrew from their families or friends. They don't want to hang out with anybody anymore. They just want to be on their own. They don't want to go out. They don't want to. They want to stay home all the time, and that's just what they want to do. Uh, any kind of violent behavior, punching holes in wall—that's a big one. Or getting constantly into fights, or finding somebody to fight with, because that's just what they want to do, and they don't want to do that stuff. A big one is giving things away. If they have things that they've cared about or loved their whole entire life, and now they're starting to give them away, that could be a huge sign about these things. You know, maybe they're starting to get their affairs in order. You know, tying any loose ends that they may have, writing a will, power attorney, whatever they may do. And uh, that, those are some signs that they may be, that these individuals are perfect candidates to be connected with the Veterans Crisis Line to allow them to get help. 
So remember, this month is very, very important for everybody. Keep an eye on people that are out there, your loved ones, the veterans that you may know. If if you notice any kind of situations like this, hey, get them the number. Have them dial 988 and then press 1 or text 838-255 so they can be connected with a certified counselor to help them and to assist them in get any kind of help that they may need. On a different note, let me give you guys a quick update on the recovery process of my back. Uh, so much better this week. I'm able to get up. I'm walking around a lot more, walking more. I actually went outside, took Gunny and our new little dog Sissy outside for a walk, and I'm able to do that. I'm still not bending. They told me to think of the acronym BLT when I left the hospital. And no, if you're like me, it's not bacon, lettuce, and tomato because when they told me, I was hungry. And that's the first thing that I said. And she said, no, BLT, no bending, no lifting, BL, and no twisting. So BLT, that's what they told me, to make sure that I followed those rules, to make sure that I didn't do all that stuff so that I allowed my back to heal properly. And, you know, and I went in there, like I said, the doctor took off the damn bandage last week. Oh, my God. It's like a freaking six-inch to seven-inch scar on my spine. So I can just imagine what the hell they did. They probably opened that thing up and said, hello. Let me look in there. And they went all inside my back and did what the heck they had to do. But it's a process. It's slow. It's getting there. And hopefully soon I'll be able to walk around. And I don't know, man, the ultimate goal would be, of course, getting rid of the medication that I take all the time. And, man, I, to run a marathon, do something. I mean, that would be, like, the ultimate, ultimate goal. And uh goal is just to manage this pain more than what I had before because it was bad. It was getting to the point where I had a real hard time standing, and now I'm hopeful that it helps to mitigate the way the pain is and stuff. And now I just got to deal with the migraines and those other issues that I have. But one step at a time, and hopefully, hopefully I can find some way, somehow, to be able to uh, get up, walk around, function more on my own and do better things that I need to do. So that's the ultimate plan. That's what that's what's been going on. That's what I bring you guys this week on our Daily Scoop. Again, remember about the Veterans Crisis Line. Help a veteran out. Help them until they can find their help, their assistance. Remember, just let them know to dial 988, then press 1, or simply text 838-255 to be connected with a certified counselor that can help them. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Science Photography. Miguel Science is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Science will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Science Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Science will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Science Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Science Photography. Visit Miguel Science Photography online at miguelsciencephotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Last week, as all the commanders gathered together to go over one last jersey drill rehearsal, before the final planning was complete, Lieutenant General Conway gathered them all together during the last few minutes of the actual briefing and let all the commanders know that the command had been put into place. 
that all they were waiting for was the final word from the President of the United States in order for them to move out of Kuwait and actually head into Iraq. This week, let's look at how they're planning on reducing the border obstacles and what are some of the enemy's last moves that they can determine, they can see what is actually going on so they can prepare themselves as they actually prepare. So as soon as they receive the order from the President of the United States, they'll be ready to go. On March 5th, Kuwaiti engineers began the reduction of the border obstacles on the Kuwaiti side. Reaching commenced with the cutting of the first electrified fence, which was cut in three places by the end of the day. The work, conducted by KLF engineers and civilian contractor, was conducted to look like routine fence maintenance scheduled for that time of the year. As a precaution, however, MEF tasked the division to provide a counter-fire capability so that the engineers could withdraw if they were fired upon by Iraqi artillery. 11th Marines ordered 511 to displace to within 5 kilometers of the berm, marking the UN demilitarized zone, and moved to the regimental CP with two Q-46 and two Q-37 radars forward to provide a counterfire headquarters and target acquisition capability. The division's FSCC stood by the request of aviation fires from 3rd Maw. There was no Iraqi response the first day. The pace of the work picked up. However, as soon as the engineers were breaching the berm and filling the tank ditches, the division noticed the increase in frequency of Iraqi patrols along the border. But still, there was no belligerent response. The engineers worked in daylight only. Each day, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Sear, dressed in a non-resident set of blue coveralls, went forward into the militarized zone to monitor, to work, and ensure that the engineers created the breaches where and how the division desired. At the end of six days of work, 28 breach lanes had been cut and the fence had been removed in 20 places. The engineers from the berm, but 11th Marines now, with 111 in position to provide counter-battery fires, remained forward. And that I can remember because we, we were sent out there to actually in place into that position while they were removing all these berms, these wires, the electrical fences, all those things in preparation in the event that there was some kind of artillery fire that was sent over from Iraq to, you know, to harm the engineers, the civilian contractors and stuff. And once everybody pulled back, that's when they're talking about that 111 stayed in place to ensure that they were still within the area that they needed to be in order to provide counter-battery fire in the event that needed as the rest of us pulled back and continued the preparations for us to be ready as soon as we received the word that we were getting ready to head out and actually head into Iraq. Now, what was the enemy planning? What were some of those last moves that they were trying to determine before all this took place. So let's look into that and see exactly what they were doing and what they were possibly thinking when all these things and events that were happening right before their eyes, you know, it's hard to believe what the heck was going through their mind. What were they actually thinking when all of this was going on and they were wondering, man, are they getting ready to cut across the border or are they coming towards us? So let's look at that and see exactly what they had planned or what they were thinking. Signs of the regime instability appeared daily as the fissures of the regime's facade began to widen. 
reports of Saddam's alleged efforts to seek asylum outside of Iraq had a demoralized effect on the Iraqi army. I mean, what do you guys think? What was going to happen when Saddam Hussein was trying to seek refuge somewhere else and leave his army there? What the heck was the army going to think? Their leader, their commander-in-chief was trying to abandon them and leave the country in order to protect himself. The reports also raised interesting questions on the U.S. side. As media pundits debated whether an attack would be necessary if Saddam were to step down voluntarily, the division remained undistracted by the running of the political dialogue and kept its attention on securing its military objectives quickly if the order came. The standard regime tactics of shuffling officers between commands, threatening deserters with execution, and reinforcing conventional units with special regime troops continued. Reportedly, an Iraqi caught with global positioning systems, or GPS, receiver or satellite telephone was subject to execution. In a nationwide exercise, in whistling in the dark, the regime continued to tell its armed forces and its people that the U.S. would not attack. Even with these false messages of assurance written for the domestic consumption, the regime began to quietly pull forces off of the Green Line in the north. The Green Line was a line of control between Kurdish and Iraqi forces in northern Iraq. Later, after the Turkish government had denied the U.S. permission to stage an attack from Turkey as part of the northern option, this trend accelerated. Most notably, the Adam Republican Guard Mechanized Infantry Division was pulled south to Tikrit and the northern escorts of Baghdad by rail, thus gaining for itself an opportunity to meet the 1st Marine Division in a future battlefield. The division's commanders and staff officers watched with disdain as the open international press began to publish some highly accurate reports of the U.S. planned attack. Reports telegraphing the critically of the southern Ramaya oil fields to the U.S. plan were broadcast in, in the international press and grimly debated by the series of pundits and national television. Having already observed the Iraqis repositioned forced in response to the media discussions of the amphibious assault, the division waited, hopeful that the enemy would not react to these new reports by initiating the destruction of the oil field infrastructure. From some of the forest engineers in Kuwait, the routine glow of the Iraqi oil infrastructure and natural gas burnoff could be seen in the night sky. Division eyes watch vigilantly for any unexplained bright spots in the night horizon. As if they were reading the division's thoughts or perhaps just reading the newspaper, signs of suspicious activity in South Ramaya Ophils increased. There were a number of isolated indicators of infantry units deploying to that area. Daily, the division sent a pioneer of detailed search patterns of the area of the oil infrastructures. The vigilance was finally rewarded on a daylight mission in March, when artillery pieces were observed getting up near Gosp. Perhaps it was a long-awaited move into the oil fields. These reports were quickly followed by a confirmation of conventional battalion-sized units moving in preparation defensive positions in the oil field area. Large suspicious trenches were dug and scattered positions throughout, and the Iraqis were observing filling these trenches with oil, then lighting them on fire. When these fire observed trenches for obstruction alone, 
Was there some more industrious purpose for these fire trenches, such as the release of chemical agents in the oil slurry? In the intelligence reports from higher, the reported size of the Iraqi unit in the oil fields quickly swelled from battalion to a division size. Division intelligence personnel noted the presence of one, two, three, and eventually four artillery batteries in South Ramalia, as well as in the nearby presence of the reinforcing artillery corps of the three corps. These reinforcing GNH-45s were particularly problematic, as they were known to be chemical capable and had a reposition to the point that allowed them to range all the way into Kuwait. The repeated sightings of BM-21 multiple rocket launchers near Zerbur, the Iraqis finally seemed to be waking from their long slumber. Closer by Al-Zabir, the battalion-sized tank unit was observed establishing defensive positions near the Crown Jewel. Element of the Three Corps Anti-Tank Missile Battalion were observed near the Shabuya barracks from Al-Zabir. Reports of the armored units moving south to defend closer to the border began to come in and the regime forces in Safwan were reportedly reinforced with heavy machine guns and tanks. Almost daily, there was some report of major changes in the enemy deposition of southern Iraq, making it very difficult to differentiate fact from fiction. Reporting of massed armor defending near Safwan and reports of the Republican Guard reinforcing of the southern Iraqi defense could not be confirmed. Even with repeated Pioneer and P-1 missions, these reports would continue to flow into the division even while crossing the fog and the friction of war continued to impact the division. Even at the doorstep of the Mac-vaunted information age, the theorized holy grail of perfect clarity of the battlefield has certainly not yet been achieved. In fact, the division's information needed appeared and expanded exponentially with each new piece of information received. In the endless and ever-extending cycle, the commanders throughout the division took it all in stride and armed the GG intent, adapted their plans, and clocked down on the Iraqi regime. The division was faced with significant impact to the timing of the opening of the gambit. RCT-5 had planned to quickly seize the oil infrastructure against only limited resistance. Now that the enemy was present in large and growing numbers, this task might take longer than originally planned. The targeting implications of these forces occupying positions near critical oil infrastructure were also very significant. The gas oil separation plants in particular had tremendous explosion potential that could easily be ignited by a careless artillery round. The division sought and received the attachments of UK oil field experts who could assist in the rapid but safe shutdown of the GOSP. This would reduce the risk of catastrophic explosions to the Marines of RCT-5, who would go and seize them. Extricating the enemy from the South Ramia would be blowing up the whole complex and themselves fell to RCT-5 as a primary challenge. Additional indicators of SSMs now appeared in the South, and the division recreation was swift. The division quickly nominated detaching SSMs for an immediate strike under the auspice of the OSW. The enemy's missiles were in violation of the United Nations restrictions to forbid certain current Iraqi weapon systems south of the 32nd parallel. 
Specific indicators of April 100 missiles and launchers were detected in Al-Qura, Al-Basra, and Azura areas. The presence of these highly mobile launchers in in range of the division's assembly areas marked a new threat. In a clear demonstration of the enemy's ability to outpace the ponderous deliberate targeting cycle, the detective systems usually hid and then move as the coalition aircraft were able to deliver bombs on target and often repaired nearly within days. This shift in targeting by OSW aircraft from anti-air defense capability to anti-offensive missile capability was a significant turning point balancing the elimination of the threats to ground into Kuwait and to the risk of beginning a general air shaping campaign was to prove very difficult. The division waited grimly and patiently for attack orders from within the range of fan of the Iraqi missile systems. Sometimes would have to change soon, as the Iraqis were gaining the capability that presented a threat to both coalition forces and the Kuwaiti civilians. So as we can see now, because of these news reports that were going out nationwide, they had the capability of actually seeing these reports and kind of seeing the actual plan that the division had planned for them once they headed into Iraq. Now, you know, I'm not a, saying I'm not a big disbeliever in the news, the media, all that stuff and everything else. But, of course, they, they got to do their job. They got to report what they got to report. And everything that they do, they have to make sure that they're still capable in doing their job. And that's all they were doing. So I you know, can't hold that against them that they were doing these reports. But in the past readings that we looked at, the division specifically spoke to the media and let them know some of the things that they could and could not report because it was going to allow the Iraqis to actually understand what the plan was for them to actually prepare for when the division actually came across the border. And that became a huge issue because I can remember as we were living our days there on board in Camp Matilda, waiting for the orders from the president of the United States to allow us to you know, get ready to head into Iraq because from that day forth, when the commanders found out about that, we were just waiting for the order. All of our vehicles were already pre-packed. Everything is already pre-staged, ready to go for us to be able to get there. And with all these new movements of all the units that the Iraqi had from uh, the Republican Guard, the tanks, the artillery, all that stuff and everything, now that they could actually reach into Kuwait with the missiles that they had in place, it, it made a little bit of a problem for us. You know, was it that big of a deal? We didn't see it that way. However... You know, we had to be prepared in an event that something like that did happen. So our alert status was way, way higher than it normally was because now we had to be prepared to actually be able to take cover, get into bunkers, whatever we needed to do, and be prepared in the event that they decided to launch a missile that might have some kind of biological or chemical weapons in them or some kind of weapons of mass destruction that they wanted to shoot into Kuwait in order to be able to engage the division prior to them heading into Iraq. So we can see how kind of problematic that was, but it's just another way that we look at it, you know, as Marines, as the division was preparing for all this, the division adapted. They overcame to a bunch of other things. They had to adapt to whatever the enemy was planning, to whatever the terrain was going to allow us to actually be able to do, and that's what we did. We were just preparing, getting ready to receive the word from the President of the United States to tell us to get ready, get into our vehicles, and head into Iraq. Hero Highlight. 
This week in our Hero Highlight, we take a look at the heroism of Platoon Sergeant Joseph Rudolph Julian, United States Marine Corps. Joseph Rudolph Julian was born in Sturbridge, Massachusetts on 3 April of 1918. He graduated from high school in Southbridge, Massachusetts, and in January of 1942, enlisted in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. Following basic training at Paris Island, South Carolina, he became a drill instructor and later was assigned to the 5th Marine Division. He was killed in action on Iwo Jima on 9 March 1945, following a one-man assault on enemy-occupied trenches and fortified positions. The Medal of Honor was awarded to him posthumously for heroism above and beyond the call of duty. The medal and citation were presented to his parents by the Secretary of the Navy on 15 November 1945. Following the war, Platoon Sergeant Julian's remains were re-entered in Long Island National Cemetery, Farmingdale, New York, at the request of his parents. The Quarterdeck. If you're just joining us, you've been listening to The Quarterdeck. I am Miguel the Gunny Signs. And this week on The Quarterdeck, we discuss a little bit more about the division and their preparation of actually waiting the orders from the President of the United States to hit him from Kuwait and into Iraq. In our reading with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq, 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy. And as we discussed, we figured that the Iraqi army was going to start making other kind of preparations because they were going to see movements from the division in actually removing the obstacles from the border between Iraq and in Kuwait. And that was the case because they actually started moving some units around and in preparation for the attacks of the things that they saw coming because the news was reporting some of the things that were very pretty much the same as the division was planning to attack once they headed into Iraq. So it made it a little bit more difficult for the division to actually head in there and be able to actually prepare themselves even better to allow them to make the decisions that they needed to do. In our Hero Highlights this week, we looked at the citation of Platoon Sergeant Joseph Rudolph Julian of the United States Marine Corps and what he did, a fellow drill instructor that was part of the Marine Corps that went out there to fight in 1945 and he was killed on Iwo Jima on March 9th. Great on him for the heroism, the things that he did in order to provide the security for this great nation and to take care of his fellow Marines around him. As always, I want to thank all my new listeners, all my loyal listeners that continue to listen to us every single week. Thank you guys so much for making our audience increase more. Remember to share with your friends, your loved ones. Let them know that we are available on Apple, Spotify, all those podcasting applications that are out there. They can just simply do a nice Google search for us and they'll be able to find the quarter deck with any size. And make sure that you subscribe and tell them to subscribe to allow them to be notified right away so they'd find out when the new episode is going to go ahead and be uploaded and it's ready for them to download and to listen next week. Until then, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.